Welcome to the Mission Point audio podcast. Due to technical difficulties, the audio quality during the first 15 minutes of this recording is far below our traditional standards. We apologize for the inconvenience. Good morning. Um, Happy Mother's Day to all uh, the moms in the house. And uh, again, a special welcome to those of you who are uh, guests with us this morning. It's no small thing that you chose to spend some of your uh, day here with us. So glad to have you. Um, And and shout out to those of you um, who uh, volunteered to serve um, our people this morning to, to make these um, moments possible. Uh, whether you help park, or you help people find their seats, or you're collecting the offering, or you help lead worship, or you're you know, helping with cameras in the back. Thank you so much for uh, the part that you get to play. Um, so, you know, it, it being Mother's Day, I, I figured I would tell a story that many of you have heard, but um, some of you have not, and that's just not good enough for my uh, pity uh, points. And so I, I just figured Mother's Day is a good time to tell the story of the one time when I almost died as a kid. So um, my brother and I, uh, growing up in Zambia, we had uh, um, a, a number of rituals. Um, and by a number, I mean one ritual mainly. Uh, what we would do is we would wake up very early in the morning before my parents did on weekends, and our goal was really, really simple. Turn the house upside down, scour the house, uh, and see if we can't find the stash of all manner of sugary treats and goodness that our parents have been hiding from us. Because we knew what every kid knows is that parents are notorious for hiding treats somewhere in the house, holding out on the rest of us. We believed this for some reason. By the way, it was never true, but we believed it. Nonetheless, so we'll wake up and we'll split up. We were strategic. My brother will go to one area of the house. I'll go to the other area of the house. Um, and uh, on this particular Saturday morning, we got up early and we started our routine. We split up um, and we started searching. And I searched here and I searched there. Eventually, I got into this pantry area in the kitchen. And um, hidden behind a variety of nonsensical, useless things um, was a, a, a can that with the label that read powdered milk. Ah! I went crazy. Now don't judge me. I love powdered milk. Still to this day. We were in Haiti last summer. I OD on powdered milk. I don't know why I loved it, but it was a delicacy, delicacy for us. We did have a lot of it. It constantly ran out. My parents thought they were smart by hiding this particular can, you know, behind a variety of useless things. And so obviously being a giver, generous kid, I was like, and I gave my brother a call, so my brother came over, we opened the can, and we began to indulge um, in this goodness. And so I put one spoonful of this stuff in my mouth. Tastes a little sour, you know, a little stale, but whatever, powdered milk is powdered milk. And just as I put this in my mouth, I felt a presence in the room. Mom's intuition is not a positive thing uh, sometimes for kids. I felt a presence. I knew what it was. Turned around, confirmed my great fear. My mom was standing in the doorway, just staring at us. She didn't seem mad. She actually seemed mortified. Like, deeply concerned. So I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. I'm dead. I'm dead. And so she leaves and she runs to the back and comes back a couple of moments later with my dad. Now, they're both standing staring at us. I'm like, what? They did like twice, twice. So they don't say anything to us whatsoever. My mom charges and she grabs my brother, picks him up, and runs out the back door down the stairs. My dad charges, grabs me, picks me up, runs out the back door down the stairs, and 
car. Now I know what you're thinking. You in cars in Africa? Don't miss the point. This is not what this is about. That's not the point of the story. So they throw us in the back of the car and then they speed out of the driveway. Now at this point, I'm getting into bargaining and negotiation. I'm thinking, can you be reasonable and spack us like normal parents? Do not give us up for a dog child. Who like this? No reaction to the minor interaction that just took place. This road driving, my mom went on to explain to us, hey, guys, your dad took an empty can of powdered milk and he filled it with a powdered form of wrapped poison. Congratulations. And so we drove to the hospital um, freaking out and there was the most ungodly and um, grotesque um, stomach pumping that ensued at uh, this said hospital, uh, you know, just uh, a number of weeks ago, just remembering this moment with my mom, when she still has a hard time talking about the one time um, her kids almost died. And it is, it's interesting, I almost died because I looked at a label um, through the lens of my limited understanding with no concern. And my mom was like, that's why your dad wrote do not eat. I'm like, I don't care what that wrote on that. I'm not looking at his writing. We're on a mission here. We've got things to accomplish. This morning, we're going to spend some time looking at uh, an emotional and yet a very hopeful song. And what this song is going to help us do is it's going to help remind God's people of what God has handwritten on our lives. Because if you're like me, then we are missing out on an immense amount of life and purpose and joy and meaning because we look at and evaluate our lives through the lenses of what we know as these kids who believe God is holding out on us somehow and we've got to figure it out for ourselves and I'm going to evaluate and assess and appraise my own life through my own lenses. And what the psalmist is going to show us is, no, God has written some truths about you. And as you lean in into those, you find yourself living most meaningfully. If you have a copy of the scriptures, join me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Um, uh, and as you're doing that, let me just tell you a little bit about the brilliance of this psalm. This psalm is built, made up of four six-verse sections. In fact, if you look at your Bible, it might even break those sections up into four um, six-verse stanzas. And we're going to take some time to look at the first three of those six-verse stanzas um, as we read through this together. And as we do that, we're going to find three truths that God has written about us. Three truths that he wants us to believe. And I think if we lean into these, we'll find ourselves living more fully. Um, Charlie and Richie are coming up the aisles. If you need a copy of the Bible, um, just raise your hand. Let them know they'll get one to you. Um, if you don't own one, please, please, please keep this as our gift to you. So, Psalm 139. Four sections, and we're going to look at the first three of those sections. 
And we are going to find three assurances that God wants to speak and sing over us. Three assurances God wants us to become entirely convinced of. And these, by the way, assurances are so fundamental. This feels like a children's ministry message, which is okay, especially on Mother's Day. And in fact, I'm going to give you the three things ahead of time so you know them. We're going to see these three declarations. Um, God knows me. Um, God is with me. And God created me. Those three simple truths that you came to church to hear this morning. So let's look at the way David says it in this first section of six verses. Verse one. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So in this first section, what David is so poetically and beautifully capturing and reminding himself of is the truth that God knows him. God completely knows him. There's no aspect, there's no area of David's life that God doesn't personally and intimately know. And this is a thought that we hear often, and it's a thought that we teach often here um, at Mission Point. And because of that, it, it becomes so easy for us to lose the wonder in the simplicity of this declaration, this assurance that God knows me. But not for David. When David writes this, he is entirely floored over and over and over again at the thought that God knows him, which is why in verse 6 he lets out this verbal sigh when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around the truth that God knows me, blows him away. Now some of you know um, that a few times a year I will work and get involved in the professional tennis world. You know, so I'll hang out at some of these, um, some of these events. Now let me just tell you, I still get as giddy and starstruck as a middle schooler. And it still freaks me out to this day when one of these world-renowned tennis superstars talks to me and uses my name. Matter of fact, I will find a way to work that into conversation with as many people as I can, like I'm doing right now. And I would, I would tell my wife about it. No big deal, you know, just, you know, just, just call me by my name, we're just chatting, hanging out, whatever, MVP, you know, um, but it still freaks me out, and yet what David is saying here is, no, I'm talking about someone who's a little bit more well-known than some of these guys, and it floors him to think that the God of the universe knows him personally, knows him intimately. And he starts to make a list of all the different things that God knows about him, almost to prove the fact that God knows him. See, because for me, some of these people may know my name, but they don't know where I live. They don't know what I go through. They don't know my kids' names. But David is saying, no, God knows me completely. He, he knows my habits. He 
says here, you know, he knows when I sit, he knows when I rise. In other words, he knows my rhythms, he knows my routines, he knows uh, my patterns, he knows everything that I do. I become entirely predictable to God. There's nothing about me and where I go and what I do that he doesn't know. He, he knows my thoughts. He knows how my mind works. He knows the things that torture uh, my mind. He knows the things that torment me. He knows the things that keep me up. He knows the things that stress me out. He knows every single thought. He knows my ambitions, my hopes, my dreams, my, my desires, the things that drive me forward. He's aware of those things. He knows my feelings. He knows every single contour of my continually changing moods. He can trace my mood swings and even see them coming. He knows me emotionally. God knows me. And David is floored by this truth. This truth has deep impact on the way David lives his Life. And here's why this floors David. Uh, David knows the theology of God's omniscience. And uh, omniscience is just a fancy way of saying God is all-knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know. Everything is exposed and laid bare before God. There are no secrets with God. He is entirely aware of everything. But what David is talking about, and what floors David, is, is not so much God's omniscience. It's God's observation. He's not floored so much by God's awareness as much as he is floored by God's adventure. Look at verse 1. This is crazy, but it's true. He says, you, God, have searched me, and you know me. Now, how many of you expert theologians know that omniscience never has to search? One of the perks of being all-knowing is that you know it all. This is what floors... David. David is suggesting that the God who knows it all has chosen to know him by discovering him as if for the first time. That's what he means when he says he searched me and therefore he knows me. And so what David cannot wrap his mind around is this God obviously really, really wants to know me. Uh, my daughter loves to make um, like creative crafts for um, her mom and uh, she really enjoys just making trinkets and making creative things. In fact, this morning I woke up and walked out the door and she had made this elaborate like Mother's Day uh, craft for her mom. But it's really interesting because she loves making these crafts and, and she also loves that experience of unveiling these crafts to us to see our reaction and our response to them. So when she's in the middle of working on one of her crafts, one of her creative crafts, what she will often do is start to make ridiculous 
requests and restrictions. So she'll say stuff like this to us. Okay, okay, I'm working on something. So can you please not go into my room? And please, please don't go into the living room right now either, okay? And the kitchen. And can you please, please, please not look under the couch? Or please don't look in any of the knife drawers. I'm like, you, this is mine. My wife is like, of course, honey, we'll do that. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, she just makes all these ridiculous rules. Um, but this is her way of saying something pretty cool. What she's saying to us is, I know this is your house. And therefore, I understand that you have every right to go into any room and unravel any carpet or bed and rifle through any drawer that you want. But I am begging you, I'm making a request. Would you please suspend your bill paying rights just for a little moment so that I can unveil what I'm working on when it's time? That's the language that David is using about God. He's saying, I know you're omniscient and I know you're sovereign and I know you have the right to unravel any life and you have the right to rifle through any drawer of any heart at any time you want. But yet you choose to know me by going on the adventure of discovering me as if for the first time talking about, huh, woo. Wow. That's the language David is using. He's saying, you search me to know me. You trace me. You discover me. You unravel me. You study me. You observe me. You have gone on an adventure to discover and get to know me. It's not just that you're omniscient. It's that you've chosen to enter into my experience to know me intimately and personally. And David is, I, I don't know what to do with that. The, 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 those thoughts are too wonderful for me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is a huge deal when we say God knows me. He has chosen the adventure of getting to know me as if he couldn't just know me whenever he felt like it. No, I'm going to know you in time. I'm going to actually ask questions and enter in and wait and be surprised and be wowed and be amazed and be invited. I want to know you. It's what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is about. God wanting to know his people so much that he laid aside his right to divinity and became like us to learn and to live and to love and even lay his life down so he could understand and so he could enter in to know us. When you begin to believe that, at a bare minimum, it will make you intolerably assured just start walking around with a different kind of swag. Hey, I heard the kids at school, they don't like you very much. Oh, yeah, funny story. Anyway, so God knows me. Uh, and and he, he's discovering me. And, and he wants to know me more and more. It will shift the way you perceive yourself and therefore the way you live your Life, when you realize you're not undesired on this Mother's Day, regardless of what the story around you seems to say, regardless of what some of the people in your world seem to communicate, there is a God who wants to go on the adventure of discovering you.
That will shift the way you live. You are not what your insecurity says on the label. God has written, I so want to know you. And David is entirely floored by that. I don't know how appreciated you feel by your kids so far today, mom. I don't know how included or wanted you feel at school. I don't know if you believe there's anyone who legitimately wants to know you. I'm not talking about to use you. I'm not talking about to get something out of you. I don't know if you even believe there's anybody who wants to know you just to know how you think and why you feel that way. Just to know what makes you cry and and what makes you laugh. Just to know you. And this announcement that God knows you is there is someone who wants to discover you. When omniscience wants to learn you and you believe that, it will affect the way you live. And some of you might need to shout to your own heart like David often had to. God knows me. You might even want to write that somewhere, that God knows me. But David keeps going. Um, And he unravels a a second assurance. It's not just that God knows me. It's that he is with me. God's with me. In fact, there's nowhere I can go and there's nothing I can do to shake him. Look at verse 7. Uh, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So um, David starts this uh, second section by asking two ridiculously rhetorical questions. Um, questions so rhetorical, so ridiculous, that they don't even deserve to be answered. Did you see them in verse 7? Question 1, where can I go from your spirit? Question number 2, same as the first, where can I flee from your presence? Is there anything I can do? Is there any place I can go where you won't personally be present with me? Is there anywhere I can go where I lose the assurance that you are the companion at my side? David is is asking this question. And in case anyone is sitting on pins and needles and, and, you know, this nail biter of a mystery, let me just tell you the answer is a categorical no. There is no such place. Wherever you go, whatever you do, he'll chase you down to be with you. Sorry, that's the truth and the declaration of God's word. And then David, almost as if to persuade the parts of him that struggle to believe this, he starts to have a conversation with God slash with himself. 
you know, and he starts to kind of push the limits. And he starts to just ask these questions, almost this point, counterpoint type of conversation, because surely, surely, there has to be at least one thing I could do. (laughs) That would, you know, uh, there has to be at least one place I can go, God, that would make you say, that's it, I'm done. I'm no longer going to be present with you. And so David starts to kind of push on this a little bit. Okay, 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 God, you're present with me. Okay, but what if I rise up to the heavens? What about there? He says in the first part of verse 8. In other words, when life is at its best, when joy is my portion, when everything is working out, when the school semester is over, when she said yes, when the new baby smell is all over my clothes, when I just got a promotion, when I'm in the heights of heaven and everything is great, are you with me there? Because in those moments, I don't tend to need you very much. I don't tend to talk to you. I don't need anything from you when life is going great. Are you telling me you're still with me then? Yep. Even when the skies are sunny, and you feel no need for me, I am right beside you. Won't be shaken. I will not leave. Okay, 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 good one. What about, what about if if I sink to the depths? What about when the clouds turn dark? What about when the bed I lie in is despair and depression? What about when the pink slip comes in? What about in those moments when the health report is less than positive? What about in the midst of my breakup? What about then? Because you sure don't seem close to me. I get up in the heavens and you were there with us when things are going great. But what about when things turn dark and we're in the depths of despair? What about when it feels like I'm walking through hell? What about then? And God said, yeah, I'll be even there. I'll I'll walk with you through hell and despair. I'm not intimidated by those things. Look at the cross. Look at the grave. I'm going to go to the depths of hell to be with you. And there's this assurance. No, even there in your despair, I am present. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. Fine. Okay. But what if, what if I'm on the other side of the sea though? What if, what if, what if I make my bed on the other side of the sea? Hmm? What about that? What about in those moments when I'm nowhere near where I want to be? What about in those times when I'm nowhere near where I need to be and should be? What about that? What about when I live with the disappointment of being nowhere near where I thought I would be by 30 or or by 40 or by 50? What about in those times when I can't even see my weight goals or my work goals or my parenting goals? What about when the distance between who I ideally want to be and who I actually am is this sea, this chasm, and disappointment lives in between? What about when I'm not who I want? And what about when there's distance between me and the people I love? They're on the other side of the sea. What about then, God? What about then? Even in your disappointments, I am with you. Your disappointments do not distance me from you. I'm there. 
And then David gives the clincher. And this is why I like David, because I think I would get to the same place he got to in my sequence. And by the way, I don't know if any of you have read Runaway Bunny, the kid's book. I was so tempted to bring it up here and have story time, you know, but um, just didn't. So, um, but David ends up in this place where he says, okay, okay, here's one. Here's a stumper for you, God. What about when I choose the darkness? No, no, no. What about when I make a mess? What about when I intentionally and deliberately decide to go into dark places that I know you prohibit me from going? And I go anyway. Come on. Gotcha. Surely you're not going to go with me in places of sin and struggle. Surely you're not going to go there. And again, I love where we live and the vantage point where we, where we can look at the cross and say, no, no, there is evidence. I will meet you in your darkness. In fact, I will take on your darkness. I will become your darkness. I will die for your darkness to meet you in your struggle. Your struggles don't intimidate me. Your sin and your failures and the messes you continue to make, they don't intimidate me. In fact, some of you are running from God right now. You are rebelling from God right now. And you need to, to be reminded, if you listen closely enough, you will hear the pity patter of divine steps tracing you. You can't outrun him. Not even in your sin. So no, I'll be there. Now, <laughs> you're not going to enjoy my presence. But I'll be there. I'll be there. I love this inner conversation that's happening. David knows the theology of God's omnipresence, which is just a fancy way of saying God is everywhere. But he's saying the God who is everywhere comes close and chooses to be near his people. God is everywhere in the general sense, but that's not what David is floored by. He's saying the God who is everywhere comes and journeys as the companion by our side. That's a flooring thought, that God enters into your experience and he journeys with you. He's doing it right now. I mean, let that sink in for a second. I don't know which side of you. I can't see. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God is with you. If you get up and take a party break, he's with you. I mean, a little weird to think, but it's still true nonetheless. It is a profound thought that God is close. And it will shake the very foundations of how you perceive your life when you believe the simple childish truth. God is with me. What a declaration. There's no delight you can ever feel. There's no distance you can go. There's no despair you can know. No darkness that you can choose that will ever shake his presence. The God who's everywhere chooses to be with you. For some of us, Mother's Day is a reminder of the people who left. I mean, everyone's happy Mother's Day. Not to you. Not to you. In fact, it took an extra strength for you to show up to a church service. 
in the beginning. It's a reminder of people who just decided you weren't worth sticking around for. A reminder of key relationships who betrayed you and abandoned you. And they're now on the other side, the far side of the sea. We might have even started to believe. We might have even walked in here reading the label on our lives. Alone and unwanted. And God would sing over us. I'm not like your mom. I'm not like your dad. I'm not like your ex. I'm not like your fickle friends. I will never leave. You cannot shake me. You better get used to the holy smell. I'm not going anywhere. And he would want us to be assured of that truth. You've never been alone, ever, if you were one of his. Alone is a lie. Abandoned is a lie. When you believe that God is with you. And maybe for some of you, you need to whisper kindly to your heart. Maybe for the first time ever or for the first time in a long time. God is with me. God is with me. And watch what starts to happen as you whisper that truth, that declaration, as you start to read that handwritten label over your life. The God is with you. And then I love the list David makes in this you know, conversation because I'm prone, again, to believe, no, God is with me. <laughs> yeah, of course God is with me. Come on, brother. We know that. I believe that, especially right now. I'm in church. Of course, God is with me. But when I mess up, call me and ask me, where's God right now? Left for a minute. He's going to wait till I clean myself up, fix things. Then he will come back. We all have places that we just believe God will not go. And he will not be with us in these seasons, in these moments, in these Places And I love that David makes a list of all imaginable and conceivable places or seasons just to remind us, nope, he's there as well. And for some of us, Mother's Day raises piercing reminders of unspeakable despair. And I want to be sensitive in, in addressing some of these things as we, you know, continue in our time. But for some of us, it is. It is the ache of longing. The ache of longings that have never been met, never been realized in you, still haven't been realized. And for some of us, it's, it's the ache of losing what you may have held for a little while. And then lost it. For some of us, maybe it's the ache of living with health issues and relational tension. And it becomes all the more meaningful to believe that God is 
with us. In fact, that becomes the most important thing to believe, that God is with me. He has always been, through it all, in the depths of despair, he's always been the companion at our side. Please hear me. There are some of us who are still waiting for God to come close. And we've hemmed him in by our expectations and our experiences. And what we've said is God is not close and I'm waiting for him to come close. And the way I'll know that God came close is that I'll be fixed. My longings will be met. That's how I'll know. And God is saying, the measure of my closeness to you is not your experience, it's my word. I promise you I'm with you. I promise you I've always been with you. Even when you cannot feel it, even when loss and despair, even when you make your bed in the depths of the sea, I am there with you. Um... You know, we were driving to Fort Wayne yesterday, and this is silly, but it, it came to mind. We're driving to Fort Wayne, and we had, you know, somewhat of a limited time, uh, you know, to get there. And as we neared the city, my wife, you know, leaned over and made the comment, we've made all green lights the whole way. And immediately she said that, my response was like, Jesus loves me, praise God. God is with us, you know. Um, and the minute I thought that, the words of this passage came flooding into my mind. Almost as if God was saying, Kondo, whether you made green lights or you made all red lights, I was still with you. And for some of us, our life has been a series of red light after red light after red light after red light. And God wants to scream to you tenderly, listen to me. I have been in traffic with you. I have been with you. I've never left. And for many of us, we're waiting for something to happen as the evidence of something that's already true. And God would want us to be assured something shifts in me when I begin to believe, no, he's with me even now. He was with me even then. Something healing starts to happen when I start to re-speak God into those moments that I had spoken him out. Wait, so you were there? I was right next to you. I was with you. He's close. Even in your choices to sin and your choices to continue to act destructively, he is with you. Now, the longer you run, the longer you rebel. I mean, the tougher it is when he catches up with you um, in the end. But more than that, the more you lose out on experiencing God, the omnipresent God, close to you. He is with us. And for some of us, again, that's the declaration we need to speak. God is with me. God, help me to experience what is true. Help me to read my experience through the label of your word, what you have said, not so much what I feel, or not so much the red lights, not so much the ache, but what you have said, what you have promised, what you have assured, which is what David grows to do. It doesn't happen overnight. 
But it happens as we rehearse these truths to our souls. And then David moves on to the third declaration of this psalm. Um, Almost as though to just kind of end the argument. Almost as though to kind of just put an end to the last fighting pieces in him that refuse to believe some of these truths. God knows me. God is with me. And then he says, because God has made me. God has created me. Um, Look at verse 13. It says, for you created my inmost being. You, God, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. This is one of the most compelling descriptions of God as the human designer. It's just beautiful. Uh, David understands the theology of God's omnipotence, which is just a fancy way of saying God is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot do with ease without breaking a sweat. God is omnipotent. What's flooring David about this is that omnipotence chose to handcraft us. That's a flooring thought to David. Um, When the the Bible opens in Genesis chapter 1, it opens with a scene of God on a creative rampage. God is creating the universe. He's creating everything that we know and everything that we see. And the way he did it was so stylish, it is outrageous. God sat on his throne and um, he created everything. With this, um, this uh, it, it's this technique called speaking. So God would speak words, and whatever he spoke became exactly what he said. It's crazy. So when there's nothing, God would speak, and then something would just appear. It was a trip. So when he wanted to create the stars and the sun and the moon, he just... Lights, please. And then the stars just started orbiting and dancing in their, you know, galaxies. It's just crazy. And then when God's like, okay, that's nice. Fishies, you know, and then fish starts teeming through the waters of all varieties and all kinds. And he wants some land animals to talk about moo, give me a cow, please. And uh, a chihuahua just for kicks and some cockroaches to scare people. And he's just having a blast creating with his words and whatever he said is what appeared. 
which is what makes it all the more staggering, all the more compelling. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and God breaks from his own protocol, he breaks from his own pattern. And what Genesis 2, 7 tells us is on the sixth day, when God wanted to create humanity, when God wanted to create man, he did something different. Omnipotence got up from his throne. And then he took a trip down to the world, the earth that he had just spent the last five days creating. And then the picture is that God gets down on the ground, omnipotence, gets down on the ground, and he starts playing in the mud. And he's padding, and he's shaping, and he's forming, and he's creating. The angels are just tripping out. I mean, I don't know how long they've been around, but at least long enough to know he can just speak. But he's on the ground, and he's just shaping with mud until eventually he's made exactly what he wanted to make. And then he breathes life into it, and Adam becomes a living being. What David says in Psalm 139 is Adam wasn't that special. He says every single person, and it is speaking particularly, obviously, about God's people, those who follow him. But he's saying this is true about every single person. That your conception was a handcrafting session for God. Every time a human being is conceived, God reaches in and he handcrafts. That's a language he's using. In Psalm 139. It wasn't just Adam. It is true about us as well. That floors David because he realizes God doesn't have to work when he can just speak. But what God is saying is this one is special to me. This one is different. This is the apple of my eye. And even though I could just create humanity, I want to craft humanity. I don't want my words to simply be in this one. I want my fingerprints to be all over this one. This one is special to me. It's what David is communicating in Psalm 139. The idea that God designed us. It's it's such a powerful, emotional, and freeing thought that, that God made us and each of us was made with painstaking accuracy God went to work on you until he had you just the way he wanted you and then he clapped for himself because he's really good at what he does that's the picture He's painting. He says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are carefully and ideally made. Fearfully, fearfully, by the way, it's kind of like um, I picture God diffusing a bomb when he was creating us. That's nice, Kondo. Why do you picture God diffusing a bomb? Here's the reason. Uh, The word fearful, it's the idea of to tremble. Almost as if when God, the omnipotent God who could just speak us into being, when he wanted to make us, 
He made us with almost a painstaking trembling that didn't want to cut the green wire instead of the red wire. He didn't want to wrongly cross one wire over the other wire. He wanted to be exactly the way he wanted it. So that when it was done, he said, wonderful. That thought, that truth, that God made you that way will shift the way you view yourself. Can can we just talk about some of these implications as we wrap? Because for some of us, we need to hear the idea that you're perfect just the way you are. And I don't mean that in some moral sense. You know better than that. I mean, if you're in Christ, you're perfect because of his perfection. But that's, that's not what I mean. But, but you're perfect. Meaning, you are exactly what God wanted when he went to work handcrafting you in your mother's womb. Look at verse 14. The second part. I love this. David believes this. And so he says, your works are wonderful, he says. I know that full world. Well, this is so cool. This will happen to you when you believe this. He says, your works are wonderful, and um, I happen to be one of your works, so yeah. That's really what he's, he's saying. Obviously, you don't make mistakes. Everything you do is awesome. Therefore, ergo, I'm pretty fetch. David, truth is affecting him. Your sense of identity, your sense of worth will skyrocket when you believe this. He has made no mistakes. Some of you have spent so much time telling God, you know, how you could have done a better job on you as you kind of focus on all the things you don't like about yourself. And we are so dumb. We typically do this by comparing ourselves to someone else. It's ridiculous. I do this, you know, because you go into the grocery store and you're checking out and then your eyes veer towards the cover of this magazine. God, why couldn't you have made me like that? I want to be the, the, you know, the, the, the model on the cover of that abs magazine. What's the problem? God is like condo. I didn't make you to be a model on the cover of a magazine. I made you to be a pastor. And then you keep your clothes on for the majority of that particular <laughs> ministry. Um, it is amazing how often we do that. Like, you could have made me like a supermodel. Why, I didn't make you to be a supermodel. Eat something. That's not what I made you to be. You are so discontent with a design because you're comparing yourself to somebody else's destiny. This would be like David saying, why couldn't you have made me seven feet tall and given me a 50-inch vertical? And God is like, because I made you to be a king. And I made you to be a military genius trying to hide on the battlefield with your seven-foot giant frame. That wouldn't have worked out. For some of us, something beautiful will happen when we realize, no, no, no. He designed me perfectly for what he perfectly designed for me. But would you be comparing yourself to somebody else because they have their own job? And we've been pursuing and chasing other people's destinies. And God is like, I designed you perfectly for what I designed you for. Maybe it's time you started figuring out how even what you view as a flaw is part of what I made for you to perfectly do what I called you to do. I make no mistakes. Stop calling my wonderful work ordinary. 
There's such power in believing God made me. He stitched me together just the way he wants. Somebody today needs to thank him. Get in your mirror. Thank you for making me me. So now please now help me understand what you created me to be. I'm your miracle. I'm your masterpiece created to do miraculous and masterful works that you've set aside. And I've been. Thank you for making me me. Now show me what you've called me to be. I want to share a couple of really tender things as we close. And then I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. If what David is saying here is true. Then for some of you, it means it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Mother's Day for some of us is a reminder of ways in which we feel our bodies failed. I am somehow a mistake. My body is somehow broken and even dangerous. And so you've been carrying around shame and blame for what you experience as your inability to carry a baby. And then we call it miscarriage. Heaven doesn't have that word in its vocabulary. Look at Psalm 139 verse 13. It says, for you. If you're a Bible circler, that's not a bad word to circle, and it shows up again. You created my inmost being, God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's not your fault. Because you are not the designer of life. You are not the crafter of your baby's life. You are the craft shop in which God chose to craft that life. He's the designer. He's the creator. He's the crafter. Sometimes when you hold yourself responsible, you are taking his responsibility. And God is saying, "Um, I'm the maker of life. Not you. It's it's not your fault. And, And there's a freedom and a healing that springs from declaring God made me. He made my body like this. And then he clapped. It's it's not your fault. And for some of us, we need to be reminded if this is true, then we've got to believe there is a story. There is a story. For some of us, we've wrestled, we've agonized over questions we just can't ever understand about life and loss, especially life and loss in babies. And I would be so foolish and cruel to sit up here and somehow believe we can answer some of the questions and some of the aches that those questions bring about there's no way but but one thing david would want us to know is that if god is the crafter of life he has a story for each 
life. I may not understand why he designed him that way. I may not understand why God only designated so short a period of time for that story. But what David said is the days were numbered in God's storybook. And his thoughts towards us are wonderful. They're precious. Meaning he's crafting and writing a story even when I don't understand it. It's amazing when I talk even about, you know, something as simple as us having to wait for, you know, our kids that we're adopting from Haiti. I will oftentimes make myself the centerpiece of that story. Well, I'm waiting and, you know, it's tough and I don't like it. And of course those things are true. But it's interesting how the Lord has rebuked me recently and said, Kondo, have you ever thought about the fact that this story is about those girls? I have a story for them. You might be the extra in the story. You may not get how the story is being written or why it would be written that way. Now, if I was to write it that way, that's not how I would write it. I would have given it more time and I would have given it more contours. And God says, I write the story and my thoughts are precious. I'm not intending to harm And there's something so powerful when I understand that God saw the unformed body. All the days were ordained and written in his book before one of them came to be. And some of the physical challenges that some of us deal with, even in our kids, it is tempting. No, that's just he has a story. And I don't like how he wrote the story, but it's his story. It's not yours. Now, I'm a part of the story, and I ache as a part of the story, and I experience pain as part of the story. But there has to be a point at which I say, God, this is your story. I don't get it, and it's tough on us. But would you please help us to believe you made no mistakes in all of this. You created me. You created her. You created them. And you make no errors whatsoever. Uh, For some of us, I know, and I'm speaking to moms in particular, this is not a happy Mother's Day. My prayer for you has been that it would at least begin to be a hopeful Mother's Day as we lean into the truth that God knows us. He's with us in every contour, every disappointment, every despair, every joy. And that he created us, meaning he is telling a story and he does it with purpose and he does it with care. So God, I pray that your truth would be the reality we live in. I pray that your truth would start to bring healing. That even though we grieve, which we do, that we wouldn't grieve um, with lies spoken over us, but that would grieve with truth calling us back to you. And Lord, when the lies speak louder than the truth, remind us that we belong to you as your sons, as your daughters. Thank you for being the perfect parent, the perfect father. And ultimately, it's you we celebrate today. In Jesus' name, amen.